This is the My Dark Path Podcast. In Hollywood, summer is a time for big stars and big action. It's the blockbuster season when massive spectacles of visual effects take over the screens at movie theaters around the world. With kids out of school and looking for something to do, it's the perfect time for movies that entertain people of all ages, for superheroes and sequels, and names we recognize right away. Which is why it was so unusual when, on July 19th, 2013, Warner Brothers, one of the biggest studios in Hollywood, opened an R-rated horror film made for less than a tenth of the budget of your average superhero movie. Its lead actors were mostly known for independent films or TV shows. It was set in the 70s, and instead of space battles or car chases, it followed a pair of real-life people investigating a spooky house. It was called The Conjuring, and while on the surface it may have looked risky to put it in theaters to compete against Hollywood's biggest investments, Warner Brothers and its studio partner New Line Cinema believed they had something special on their hands. Test screening audiences loved the film, and while that R rating may have prevented younger audiences from seeing it, the filmmakers took it as a badge of honor. Because the film didn't have sex, nudity, or gore, or even cigarette smoking. And even though it's a horror film, spoiler alert, nobody dies. And yet, the ratings board was adamant. The movie was simply too frightening for a PG-13. Beloved by fans and even by critics who normally dismiss horror films, The Conjuring grossed twice its production budget in just its opening weekend. And although it's the Marvel superhero adventures which have given rise to the term cinematic universe, this unlikely box office hit has created its own universe of sequels and spin-offs, with films like Annabelle, The Nun, and The Curse of the La Llorona all sharing characters and plot elements and an interconnected franchise. Annabelle, you may recall, got a mention in our first season episode about haunted dolls. The eight movies tied to The Conjuring are now considered the second most successful horror franchise in history, behind only Japan's Godzilla movies. And the protagonists, the real people whose fictionalized exploits tie this whole movie series together, before The Conjuring, their names were only known among paranormal enthusiasts. But now, they were a pop culture phenomenon, self-proclaimed independent demonologists and collectors of paranormal artifacts, Ed and Lorraine Warren, played on screen by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. The movies all purport to be based on their real-life research, and they found their way into some of our most infamous stories of hauntings and possessions in the 1970s and 80s. In our last episode about Amityville, you heard their names as a part of the gaggle of local psychics and ghost hunters who descended on 112 Ocean Avenue at the invitation of a local news team. In the film series, they are a loving, earnest, and pious couple who put their lives at risk to battle dark and demonic forces and protect the innocent. In real life, they were called conmen, hoaxers, and kooks, self-promoters exploiting confused and distressed people. Along the way, they've inspired an entire community of amateur ghost hunters on TV and online. My Dark Path can't resist stories like this. Did the Warrens really believe the stories they've told? And it just so happens a member of our team has a terrific personal tale to tell about Ed and Lorraine. Kevin Wetmore visited them in their home in Monroe, Connecticut, and explored their self-proclaimed occult museum. He's even seen the real Annabelle. His story is so funny and strange that the only proper thing to do would be to let him tell you himself. So, after I give you some background on the demonologist and the medium, I'm going to have a conversation with Kevin that you're going to love, no matter what you think of the Warrens. Hi, I'm M.F. Thomas, and welcome to Season 2 of the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. So if you geek out over these subjects, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. 
I hope you'll check us out on YouTube, follow us on Instagram, sign up for our newsletter at MyDarkPath.com, or just send me an email to explore at MyDarkPath.com. I love it when I get your email. And now in 2022, we're launching our Patreon, where subscribers will have access to exclusive full episodes, starting with our special miniseries, The Secrets of the Soviets, which is a My Dark Path tour of the history, science, and paranormal of Cold War Moscow. Finally, thanks for listening and choosing to walk the dark paths of the world with me. Let's get started with episode 33, A Date with the Warrens. Part 1 Edward Warren Miney was born on September 7, 1926, in the old industrial city of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Lorraine Rita Morin followed him into this world just four and a half months later, on January 31, 1927, in the same city. They lived the love story most people dreamed of back then, high school sweethearts who stayed together their whole lives. They were 16 when they started dating. When Ed turned 17 at the height of the Second World War, he enlisted in the Navy. The ship he was assigned to went down in the North Atlantic, but he survived this terrifying brush with death and was sent home for a 30-day survivor's leave. He didn't pass up the opportunity and married Lorraine during that month at home. On January 11, 1946, Lorraine gave birth to their only child, a daughter named Judy. From their very first meeting, they had shared an interest in the supernatural and the paranormal. Ed would often say that he grew up in a haunted house and saw his first apparition at the age of five. Lorraine believed herself to be a psychic medium, able to see both the future and the past. She would tell friends that, as a child at a Catholic school, she looked at a sapling and was able to envision the tree as it would become. After his service, Ed went to art school. They dreamed of making a living as artists. They also had a deep, shared faith, raised as devout Roman Catholics in an era before the Second Vatican Council, transformative period in the 1960s when the Church revised and attempted to modernize many of its practices. This combination of beliefs and experiences made them feel called by God to battle demonic activity on earth. They had an unusual method for conducting their investigations, but it seems to have worked often enough. If Lorraine, using her psychic sensitivity, believed that a house contained malicious spirits, Ed would paint a picture of the house. He would then knock on the door and offer the painting as a gift, if the homeowners would allow the Warrens to conduct an investigation. I'm not sure how I would react to such a proposition, though I admit I would be awfully flattered if someone painted a picture of my home. After five years of this, they founded what they called Nesper, the New England Society for Psychic Research. It's the oldest ghost hunting group in the American Northeast and became their permanent full-time pursuit. They hired a manager who would book them to deliver lectures around the country about hauntings and demons. Interestingly, this was their primary source of income because they kept to their standard of never billing any of the people for whom they conducted their investigations. I'll share more on that detail later. In 1972, that manager got them a speaking slot at West Point, the nation's premier military academy. America was having something of a fever for the supernatural at that point, driven in part by the best-selling book The Exorcist. While they were at West Point, they were invited to investigate alleged hauntings at the school, and it was this high-profile case followed by their appearance in Amityville which made them celebrities. The media theory philosopher Marshall McLuhan coined the phrase, the medium is the message. What it means is that you should pay as much attention to how you receive the information as to what the information is. Interview requests for the Warrens skyrocketed after their West Point speech and now frequently included local television appearances. They didn't come across like razzle-dazzle magicians or zealous crusaders, but their devotion to one another and the confidence in detail of their stories was very effective on television. So TV wasn't concerned with whether or not what they said was true. They kept getting on because they made for good TV. Ed styled himself as, quote, the world's only Catholic lay demonologist, end quote. 
which sounded like a very exciting thing to be. And when author Gerald Brittle wrote a biography of Ed Warren in 1980, he called it The Demonologist. This book describes a number of the investigations the Warrens claimed to conduct. What's interesting is that it was never just a ghost they were chasing. It was always evil spirits, demonic possessions. The Warrens weren't just studying these phenomenon in the name of research. They were agents of the Lord, battling for the soul of the human race. At least, that's how they described themselves. And this was their full-time career for the rest of their lives. They hired authors to co-write books with them about their investigations. They delivered paid lectures. They appeared in documentaries. And if a haunting received major media attention, you could bet they would make an appearance. In 1977, they flew to London to investigate the so-called Entfield Poltergeist. This case formed the basis of the movie The Conjuring 2. And as a note, I've been researching the Enfield Poltergeist for a future My Dark Path episode. Despite the hair-raising events of the movie, witnesses claimed that in reality the Warrens' investigation amounted to little more than showing up uninvited and loitering for an afternoon. In all their years of work, they never produced anything which you might call conclusive evidence of the paranormal. Occasional photographs with odd shadows or blobs of light seemed to be about the closest they got. Neither of them had any scientific training to speak of, and to take them at their own word, they weren't on a mission to persuade the world that demons were real. They were there to drive those demons out as quickly as possible. So there's no real way to judge how successful they were at that. So, to everyone else, their greatest talent was for using America's own fascination with ghost stories to make their living. Part 2 The Warrens were a persistent presence in pop culture for years. That TV show we told you about in our previous episode, In Search Of?, featured them in their episode on Amityville. They appeared on talk shows with Mike Douglas, Tom Snyder, Merv Griffin. In 1992, they appeared on the Sally Jesse Raphael show, where the topic of the day was, I've been raped by a ghost. The Warrens offered their expert opinion on sexual demons known as incubi and succubi. One of their cases was turned into a made-for-TV movie in 1983. It was called The Demon Murder Case, and their characters were renamed Guy and Charlotte Harris. Guy Harris was played by, of all people, Andy Griffith, and later a moderately successful horror film called The Haunting in Connecticut was based on another case in which the Warrens made themselves a part of. But in this movie, their role was played by a single priest rather than a lay exorcist and his psychic wife. The Conjuring, though, was the first high-profile Hollywood project to put the Warrens in the starring role. The screenwriters Chad and Carrie Hayes were veterans of the genre, and the director James Wan had something of a golden touch for launching horror franchises. He was responsible for the movies Saw and Insidious, both of which inspired multiple sequels. Although Ed Warren had passed away by the time the movie was made, Lorraine served as a consultant, which the studio heavily promoted. As Hollywood did with the Amityville Horror, they marketed The Conjuring as being based on a true story. It focuses on an incident in which the Warrens investigated an 18th century farmhouse in Rhode Island, the home of the Perrin family. From what we can tell, the family had been experiencing innocuous, strange events since 1971 when they moved in. Imagining the house to have prankish spirits in it was either a family joke or a harmless, supernatural belief. But it seems that things gradually turned darker. Around 1974, the Perrin family suddenly claimed to see terrible apparitions, hear voices ordering them to get out, and see doors open and slam shut on their own. The Warrens, as in other cases, weren't specifically invited by the family, but showed up with a group of paranormal enthusiasts. It was Lorraine who declared the dark spirit behind these incidents as Bathsheba Sherman. The Warrens claimed that Bathsheba had been a Satanist who'd lived there, sacrificed her own daughter in an unholy ritual, and hung herself from a tree on the property so that she could haunt it forever. 
The Perrin children do believe to this day that they experienced a real haunting and that they watched as the Warrens brought a number of people to the house to perform what seemed like an exorcism on their mother. Even they will admit, though, that much of the movie was fictionalized. But the expertly made film did its job, raking in money for the studio and making Ed and Lorraine Warren household names. The average person is now more likely to picture the actors that play them than the real couple that made so many fleeting talk show appearances over the years. But it was back in those more obscure days that our own Kevin Wetmore, a self-proclaimed nerd about horror and the paranormal, paid to have an exclusive meeting and tour with the couple themselves at their Connecticut home, which also housed their occult museum. And now, as promised, is this story. So I'm here with Kevin Wetmore. In addition to being a researcher and writer for My Dark Path, Kevin is a professor, actor, writer, director, and a stage combat choreographer. He's also a Bram Stoker Award-nominated editor, as well as the author of over a dozen books. So, Kevin, to start off with, I understand you first learned about the Warrens as a kid. Can you tell us about that? My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. It began being a weird kid in Connecticut in the 80s and 90s, and growing up and being interested in all sorts of things that went bump in the night. Uh, and there were great TV shows like In Search Of, and That's Incredible, that would have on, you know, that would do things about... Uh, investigations and for example the in search of had a uh, episode with about the Amityville horror that had the Warrens on it and it mentioned that they lived in Connecticut and I'm you know 11 years old going hey I live in Connecticut I live near the, the cool ghost people this is amazing and so uh, they start making you know they start making appearances on daytime TV uh, you're you're this is no insult you're old enough same as I to remember things like Donahue and Sally Jesse Raphael and Mike Douglas show and you know, they would, they would have on celebrities, they would have on chefs, but they're like, today we're being joined by the Warrens who are going to talk about an investigation they had. And so when those were on in the afternoon, you know, rather than watching cartoons, I'd be like, we got to watch the Warrens. So I sort of grew up knowing about their existence and fascinated that you could be paid to go to scary places and tell people what you thought. That seemed like a great job. As an adult, how did you get connected with the Warrens? Uh, but this didn't become a reality until I was in graduate school in at the University of Pittsburgh working on a doctorate in theater. And my best friend, uh, a man named Tom Quinn, uh, was across the border in Ohio getting his uh, law degree. And so here we are, two boys from small town Connecticut, both fascinated by the Warrens, uh, going to school in the Midwest to get our, our degrees. And his uh, girlfriend, now his wife, had a job um, sort of programming stuff at a college in Rhode Island. And so she had contact information for the Warrens and she would book them every year. Every October, uh, the Warrens, you know, made a good deal of their money by giving college lectures. They would go to schools. So there was always a high demand in October, but they'd be all over New England giving lectures. So we, we heard about this and would go and, and hear the lecture and see the presentation. And then she told us, the Warrens told her that they they, they did sort of a, you could, you could, um, pay them for a, a, a ghost hunting tutorial. And the second we heard this, we're like, we are so there. Neither Tom nor I are ghost hunters. Uh, despite the youthful interest and ambitions, uh, to be brutally honest, just between you and me and everyone listening to this, I'm not even sure I believe in ghosts. I just find the idea fascinating. And uh, I guess it's wish fulfillment as a horror writer. I, I want there to be, the world to be more magical than it is. Uh, so when we found out, you, you could uh, pay the Warrens and spend the day learning from them. We're like, this is a course. This is awesome. Uh, a private course. Spend the whole day with the Warrens. How did you manage to schedule lunch with the Warrens? We, we called. We, had, we got their phone number. We called them. Set up a date uh, in December. 
uh, because that's when we both be back from our universities visiting family. And we grew up in a small town called Cheshire and the Warrens lived in a, a town about 30 minutes away called uh, Monroe uh, and right near Union Cemetery, which they have a book about called Graveyard because they call it the most haunted uh, cemetery in, in, uh, in New England, if not the country. Uh, and of course, I had grown up reading all of their books and all of their um, co-written books. So we, we drive there. I remember there was snow on the ground. It had just snowed a few days before. It was very cold out. And it's this sort of lovely brick suburban home just on the street. You wouldn't know the Warrens live there. It's not that they had a, a huge sign out front or mm-hmm. there were ghosts like pounding on the windows to get in. You wouldn't know the Warrens had lived there if you didn't have their address. So uh, we walked up, knocked on the door, and the door opens, and there's Lorraine uh, in a bathrobe with her hair wrapped in a, t- in a towel. And she's like, hi, boys. Excuse me, I just got out of the shower. And at that moment, I said, this is going to be the most surreal day of my life. <laughs> and again, frighteningly polite woman, very kind. But I'm just like, she's here in a bathroom. She's like, just got out of the shower. Ed's in the living room. You boys go in there. Uh, we'll, you know, I'll be down as soon as uh, I get ready. Uh, but Ed's waiting for you. So she sends us into the living room. And Ed's sitting in an easy chair and just says, boys, and points at the couch uh, that's sort of perpendicular to him. And the two of us sit down, you know, hello, Mr. Warren. It's an honor to meet you. We're delighted to be here. And uh, the first thing he says is, have you boys seen a demon? Uh, and it's one of those sort of pause questions of, do you mean on the way in? Like, did you lose one? Or you, you think he might be on the driveway? Uh, and I, we're, we're like, no. He said, I've seen demons. You wouldn't want to see a demon. And And I didn't say anything at the moment, but my immediate reaction, my reaction ever since has been, I think you're wrong there, Ed. Actually, I would. I would like to see a demon. I'm sure it's terrifying, but I, I would kind of be interested in that experience. Sure. Uh, looking for evidence of the supernatural, because if you watch ghost hunting shows, most of the evidence of the supernatural is people going, wait, what's that? Did you hear that? And then they play it back slowly and it's voice going, and you're like, did you hear Stephen? I heard Stephen. Clearly it's haunted. What stories did Ed share? So he then talked us through a whole bunch of cases, asked us a little bit about ourselves. Where, where are your boys from? I know you're from Connecticut. Where are you from? Uh, we told him, he's like, oh, that's right next to Southington. And he starts telling us the story that was eventually made into the film of the the haunting in Connecticut. And we're mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, we, we've read Ghost Hunters. We read your book about the, the uh, Snednecker case. We, we know all about it. Uh, he told us about uh, um, the werewolf uh, who makes an appearance in the film, uh, both in The Conjuring and The Nun. Uh, Frenchy, the, the French-Canadian man who uh, was possessed by the spirit of a werewolf. Uh, he told us about the Smurl case. He talked about items in the museum. I mean, we were just sitting there for a couple hours on his couch as he told us all these different stories and answered questions. Uh, and it was it was fascinating. Um, the man was a true believer, or at least a very convincing performer, because he's telling these stories, and it was always in the form of a cautionary tale. It was always, you don't want to do this, because this is what happens. We were in a living room that could have been my grandma's living room, and it was like having ghost stories told around a campfire and being told this all really happened. This is all really true. So even if you don't quite believe it, you're still sort of looking around, looking in the woods going, I don't think there is a hairy axe man, but my scoutmaster is telling the story. So let's just be careful. <laughs> Did you get to see Lorraine again? And then Lorraine comes in uh, now fully dressed uh, and, and lovely with a tray full of bologna sandwiches and milk. She sets it down on the coffee table and we each take our sandwich. And as we eat, Ed continues to tell us stories from the different cases and the strange things and advising us what to do and what not to do. And we're, we're listening. I'm thinking, oh, man, I wish I brought a recorder. I wish I were right. taking copious <laughs> notes because this stuff is fascinating. What were Ed and Lorraine like? Years later, when I went to see The Conjuring, one of the first thoughts that I had is Patrick Wilson is lovely, but Ed Wilson or Ed, Ed Warren is not Patrick Wilson. Patrick Wilson is smooth and uh, sort of this charming dad, not that Ed wasn't, but I like to describe that as a working class demonologist. He grew up on the streets of Pittsburgh, or not Pittsburgh, excuse me. He grew up on the streets of Bridgeport, Connecticut, uh, the largest urban area in Connecticut. Uh, he was in the Navy. You know, he's a guy who worked with his hands until he, and was actually a painter. That's how he got his start. Uh, one of the stories that he's told us, which we've heard many times since, Lorraine was the sensitive and he was sort of the, the, the expert on, on demonology, self-taught. And so if there was a haunted house, Ed would paint the house, make a painting of the house. They'd then knock on the door and be like, hey, you don't know us. We just made this painting of your home. It's yours if you can just let us come in and see how haunted this place actually is. 
So uh, there was this sort of weird traveling salesman vibe to the start of their yeah. career that they were also kind of proud of, that, that I was my art that got us in the door. What surprised you most about Ed and Lorraine? How ordinary it all was. They're, if I'm going to describe their home in a word, it's ordinary. You know, the, the, the furniture was perfectly nice. The carpeting was nice. Uh, some of it was from the 70s. Some of it was from the 80s. You know, it was a little bit of a mix and match. But it, it basically looked like any living room of my friends, my family having grown up in Connecticut. This is a suburban living room. I'm like, I kind of expected, I don't know, like proton packs at a moment's notice in case a ghost shows up, that we've got to cross the streams and open up a dimension, that there'd be, you know, a Bible on every wall or on a, on every yeah. surface, that, that they'd be ready to... And this was just their home. This is where they lived. There, there, was, there was no bookcase full of ancient forbidden texts. You know, mm-hmm. there, there, there were like a couple paperbacks lying around, just fun reading. Yeah. And as I mentioned, you know, Ed comes across as sort of this working class demonologist where he's like, you know, where, and the exorcism starts. And I say to the demon, you know who I am? And I'm like, I feel like I'm watching the exorcist meets the Godfather. It's so strange that, you know, and the demon, you know, I could tell the demon was afraid. And I'm like, you got to get out of here. You got to get out of this guy. And then Bishop McKenna comes in with the prayers and it's sort of a, okay, you present yourself on these talk shows very seriously, but just telling stories, I feel like I'm listening to my uncle talk about, you know, his time in Vietnam. Did you get to see their museum? After our sort of several hour lesson, Ed points to the door that says, you know, the Warrens, uh, consultants on demonology and witchcraft, and says, mm-hmm. it's in there. All right, boys, go on in. I'm like, you're not coming with us? He goes, you boys will be fine. But, um, okay, some, some caveats, some warnings do not make fun of Annabelle and tells the story that they tell every time, which is a really tough guy who rode a motorcycle, the definition of tough, uh, made fun of Annabelle and then was killed on the way home. And then there are other items that if you mock them or make fun of them or you touch them, you can unleash dangerous demonic energies. So Annabelle is behind glass. What you see in the movie is that, you know, this sort of little handwritten sign, you know, do not, do not open glass, demonic forces inside. Uh, and it's a Raggedy Ann doll. That's the difference from those of you who are film fans of the film. It's a big Raggedy Ann doll. But I will say this. I went in that room, and even as a skeptic, I'm like, this room is colder than it is outside. There is, It's just cold. And again, depending on your point of view, was it colder because I had just heard three hours of, of de- stories about demons and ghosts and horrible mm-hmm. things that happened and that the items in this room, you know, had I been prepped right. to feel that way? Or, you know, was I psyching myself up? Or... Is it literally because there's no heat in their museum, so it was the same temperature that it was outside, and having just been inside a very warm living room, am I feeling the cold because it literally is that cold? Either, you know, so I I think I started to freak myself out a little, and we're just looking at all these things, but you're in the the Warren's Occult Museum alone, which is the other thing that I didn't expect is, considering that you just told us everything in here can kill us, Mm-hmm. Like if I had a room full of, of, of guns that were loaded safeties off, I wouldn't tell complete strangers, head on in there, take a look around, just don't touch anything. I'd be standing there with them to make sure they didn't. So Kevin, what did you love most about the museum? It's someplace I've always wanted to visit. If, if, if it didn't exist, a screenwriter would invent it. Because it's mm-hmm. also, you know, speaking now as a fiction writer, it's such a great story engine. We have an entire room full of haunted and possessed artifacts. The, the the thing that didn't surprise me it all, it was all very ordinary, but behind the ordinary was this wonderful sense of showmanship, of priming you to enter this room and see the reality of the supernatural. And to I, 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 I don't deny, seeing Annabelle with my own eyes was fun. Seeing the armor, the, the possessed samurai armor, seeing all of these toys and fetishes and... But there, you know, because it's called the Museum of the Occult, uh, you're in there, and these things that, again, I've read about in books like the Demonologists, Ghost Hunters, The Haunted, um, and seeing the actual items, there's just something there that makes it kind of fun and just a little scary. It's the ultimate haunted house because this isn't fake stuff; it's stuff from real investigations that they claim actually have some sort of entity and. On here on My Dark Path, we did the whole show about possessed dolls. So there's something to that in terms of, I don't know if they're possessed or not. I don't know if demons are real. I don't know if ghosts are real. But this was a heck of a show that get you primed when you walk in to go, I feel cold. This is weird. There's something strange in this room, even if it's just me having these feelings. So it was a, a, I'm going to go grad school again. It was a phenomenological experience just to be there and experience it. Uh, as a tourist, but also as someone who kind of doesn't believe but really wants to, 
I, I took one tiny step closer to going, there could be a demon in that doll. But then, you know, five minutes later, we're going, I'm good. You want to, where, where do you want to go for dinner? So, it, and I think also that was part of the fun was being there with a friend who is also a skeptic, but also a fan. And that's the weirdest thing. And we certainly, we at My Dark Path, I think, understand this. We're fascinated by the supernatural and the unknown. We're just not quite sure if we believe in it. Yeah. And so there's that exciting element of, you know, the doing the thing that might be dangerous or might not be at all. But yeah. you're there. Most of the items in there we were not told about. Hmm. So because if, most of the stories, when they talk about the Smurl case, when they talk about the haunting in Connecticut, when they talk about Amityville, they don't have anything material from those places. Right. Um, so, you know, he, he told us all about the Amityville case. He told us about Ron DeFeo. He told us about uh, the, you know, the, what, what they were there and what they were doing. Um, but there's, I don't believe there's anything from Amityville in the museum. And so that's, wow, I never even thought about this. Uh, I feel yeah. like I'm in therapy having a breakthrough. Most <laughs> of the items were not linked to the stories that were told. There were some, and Annabelle is sort of, Annabelle's the center. Annabelle is, is what everyone knows. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly, I, I think the, the screenwriters of The Conjuring were very smart. If you're going to introduce the Warrens, don't start with the parents. Start with Annabelle. Because mm -hmm. that's the case that was featured on every show they were, they've were they ever been featured on when they're doing sort of a profile of the Warrens. You hear about the Annabelle case, the possessed doll that left notes that had a demon inside it. Mm -hmm. And you get to say such wonderful lines. They said it in the movie, but I think Ed himself said it that day. You know, there wasn't a ghost in the doll. Whatever was in that doll has never walked the earth in human form. And you're like, oh, that's good. That's I don't care if it's true or not. That's good. That's right. good. That's spooky. I got chills. <laughs> you mentioned seeing Annabelle earlier, but what else did you see? And you're sitting there going, okay, there's Annabelle. And right next to her is just a pair of scissors. Right. What's that about? Why yeah, didn't we hear yeah. about this? I want to hear about the scissors. What did, what, what did the scissors do? Are those Annabelle's <laughs> scissors? So it's the same thing where you go in the room and there's, there's various toys um, there are various items, some of which had like little index cards explaining, most of which didn't. You're just looking at, you know, here's a knife and here's a sword and here is uh, this sort of strange mechanical device and here is a book, uh, but there's no title on the cover or on the spine. And you were told you can't look, you can't touch anything, so I'm not going to be like, oh, what are we reading? Uh, mm -hmm. For fear of unleashing whatever's living in them. Uh, and here's why I say the showmanship is phenomenal. It didn't matter. Because the second you're in there, you're already making up stuff in your head. You're like, there's a pair of scissors here. The heck? Are those going to come up after us? Like, what? He didn't tell us about the scissors. We weren't warned about the scissors. Are they from a ghostly barber? Are they from a seamstress who was possessed? Are the scissors themselves an item of danger? I don't, I don't know what to do with the scissors. So you, you just, the thing that you've been told over and over preparing you to enter this room is everything in there can kill you. Everything in there is somehow affiliated with the demonic, with the supernatural, with some sort of savage or terrible haunting. Uh, and the funny thing is, and, and, and thank you, uh, Matt, for getting me to realize this, how few of those items were actually connected to the stories we heard. So it's, it, the room itself is sort of its own story. Here's right. Annabelle. You know, here's, here's the center. Here's Annabelle. Go in. And again, I, this is... And this is a phenomenon we experience all the times ourselves, that you've seen Paris on, in film, you see the Eiffel Tower in film, but you're actually there. You're like, there it is, it's the Eiffel Tower. To see the actual thing somehow makes it both more real and not what you thought it was. And to be face-to-face -face with Annabelle, who I had seen on TV shows for the past, by that point, 20 years, and read the books about, to actually be there and be like, that's the doll. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, you hear the call of the void, much the same way that you stand at the top of a cliff and you're like, eh, what would happen if I throw myself off? You're, at least I looked at Annabelle and I was like, what would happen if I did make fun of it? Because I don't ride a motorcycle. Am I going to get in a car crash? Uh, am I, you know, is this doll going to haunt my dreams? And that perhaps it gives me the lie in that I'm a skeptic, but I'm not so skeptical that I'm going to make fun of the doll that Ed said making fun of would kill me. We just wrapped up two episodes about Amityville, part one about the crime and then part two about the events surrounding the stories of the haunting. What did you learn about Amityville from Ed and Lorraine? For Ed, he was like, you know, he sort of went through their stuff chronologically. So Amityville was uh, close to the beginning and he was talking about, you know, you got, I'm sure you boys, they kept calling us boys. You, you boys, I'm sure you boys have heard of Amityville. I'm like, oh yes, sir, we have, we have. Ed's take on it was that, um, the, the place itself had been cursed, that it had been uh, 
you know, cursed by the Indians at an Indian burial ground, to use his language. And of course, research has proven no, the Native Americans never buried their dead anywhere near there. Uh, yeah. Then also there were, you know, there were stories about this, this the, the idea of a cursed place that made it a locus for demon attention. And then when the DeFeos moved in, uh, the, the father might have been connected to the mob and mm -hmm. Ron was deeply troubled and loved guns. And this created an opening for a demon to get into Ron. And, you know, there were strange things happening around the house and he was hearing voices and there was this black slime in the basement and black slime in the toilets. And it had gotten inside Ron. And so he killed his family and then he went to work and then he went to a bar and he's like, I don't know what happened to my family. Come help me. And then he comes back and says, oh, I found their bodies. Call 911. And within a few hours, the police were like, yeah, you're the guy who did it. And as soon as he was arrested, he claimed, you know, I, I have no memory of it. And uh, so then the Warrens were involved in that. That's their story of, of Ron mm -hmm. And the, the story of Ron DeFeo himself, as we talked about a little on, on the true crime, My Dark Path, is very sad and very complicated. Not really what they talk about in the book, The Amityville Horror. Jay Anson was really going for much more fictional uh, mm -hmm. narrative there, to put yeah. it charitably. So when Ed and Lorraine come in, it's because the Lutzes are uh, experiencing all sorts of strange things. And there's, you know, there are flies and there are things in the yard. And there are a lot of things in the book and in the movie that were added that mm -hmm. didn't actually happen to the Lutzes. And in fact, there are a, lot, a large number of people who claim nothing actually happened to the Lutzes. George and Kathy found themselves. And again, I'm not saying this. I'm saying this is what some people have argued, that George and yeah. Kathy themselves are the ones who sort of found themselves with a mortgage they couldn't afford to pay. And this became a great way to either make money or to unload the house, you know, for a reason. So uh, we can always be suspicious of people's motives, but uh, when Ed talks about the experience, he's like, so the, the DeFeos dealt with the impossession and the demons were still in the house when the Lutzes were there. And our job was just to help protect them, help protect the kids and get them out of there once they realized the place wasn't safe. And the question is, you know, well, what's still going on? Is the place still a locus of demon activities? Like everyone who's lived in the house, you know, has experienced strange things. and. I found out later, of course, that's not true either, but it makes for a great story. What do you think about Ed's claim that he is a demonologist? Uh, because Ed is a demonologist, and here's one of the things where, uh, I, I'll continue to answer your question, but I just want to take a side jump and say, the book, the, the first book Gerald Brittle wrote about Ed Warren and Lorraine Warren is called The Demonologist. And the claim is made that Ed is sort of the only lay demonologist appointed by the Catholic Church. And as someone who grew up and was raised Catholic and was fascinated by the dark path uh i was like oh how do you get appointed a lay demonologist and my parish priest explained you don't because there's no such thing uh wherever you heard it they made that up and i was like ed warren lied to us uh yeah there's no such thing you want to know how to be a demonologist call yourself a demonologist it's yeah. kind of like being a director in the theater <laughs> call yourself right. one and get other people to say it too and you're good um you know you can train you can talk you can do things but a demonologist is literally someone who just studies demons yeah. And so Ed, uh, you know, Ed, Ed is an expert on demons, and for him, it always comes back to demons. Uh, he viewed, in reading his stuff and looking at him, whether he, you know, and I think they're both very complicated figures, whether you think he was uh, a fraud and a hoax or uh, someone who genuinely believed and was misguided or what he said is actually somehow true, for Ed, the, 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 there was a genuine fear. Um, they were Tridentine Catholics, which means people, Catholics who don't believe in the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. So they, they don't want mass in English. They don't want, uh, you know, sort of more modern Catholicism. They want things to be the way they were back in the 50s. So uh, the, the person that they work with, if you study their work, Bishop McKenna, is one of these priests who doesn't, you know, it's like there hasn't actually been a real pope since, uh, since, um, uh, before John the 23rd, uh, you know, the church has gone the wrong way, so we're going to stay this way. And so Ed and Lorraine Warren were actually culturally and religiously very, very conservative. And uh, for Ed, it really was about the fight with darkness, that there are demonic and evil forces out there, that the devil is real, that demons are real. And the problem is nobody takes it seriously and kids think it's fun to play with Ouija boards and kids think it's fun to do all these games, light as a feather, stiff as a board. And these are all invitations into the demonic. Uh, and so I suppose on one hand, you can respect that. They're trying to perform a public service. On the other hand, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's kind of easy then to loop them in with, uh, you know, all the uh, evangelical Christians who are saying kids who play D&D &D and listen to heavy metal music or Madonna uh, are all invoking demons and trying to summon spirits and they're all worshiping Satan and eating babies. 
Uh, to which my response at the time was, I am so doing this wrong. Were there any broader cultural trends that paralleled the rise of the Warrens? When they started to rise to national prominence in the late 70s, we start to see the rise of the satanic panic fears in the United States. I think the Warrens, Mm -hmm. culturally speaking, and now here's the grad school showing up, I think the Warrens, culturally speaking, are very much part of that heavy metal D&D you know, horror movies, the kids are out in the woods worshiping Satan. Like, no, we're not even drinking. We're just, you know, trying to slay this bugbear. I have a half elf that's a fighter magic user and I really don't want him to die. Uh, The things that we're doing aren't actually that scary, but the parents, uh, you know, this is the time of the Martin preschool uh, panic. This is the time of uh, fear that Satanists are throughout America doing all sorts of horrible things and the demons are real and you've got the uh, with the advent of cable and the need to fill all this programming a lot of horror movies that would not have otherwise been seen by people are out there and a lot of talk shows the the first appearance of the Warrens on Sally Jesse Raphael was on an episode called I was raped by a ghost mm. and again this is daytime television this is for children and housewives who are sitting at home. Sally Jesse is ta- interviewing women who claim to have been sexually assaulted by some sort of ghost or demonic mm. creature. And the Warrens are there saying, that can really happen. We have helped people who have had it happen to them. Now here are mm. a bunch of stories about people who have had it happen. How do you react to the critique that the Warrens actually injected themselves into these paranormal incidents? How you view the Warrens depends on how cynical you are, how much you believe in the supernatural, and also the stories that you hear about them. There are some people who will swear these people really helped us, and there are many people who have really worked hard to sort of debunk their work. Uh, they're larger than life, and uh, you know, if you want to criticize, you can say they're larger than life because they made themselves larger than life. That uh, the line that I that I use in in one of my books is that the, the funny thing about The Conjuring is it does exactly what Ed and Lorraine Warren used to do, which is take someone else's story and make it about them. Mm-hmm. The story of The Conjuring is the story of the Perrin family, except The Conjuring is really about the Warrens. Right. Uh, and Andrea Perrin herself uh, has written not one, not two, but three books totaling over uh, 2,000 pages about the story, her experience of The Conjuring. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have a book from from the young woman, and her version is very different than the Warren's version. And just like with The Conjuring 2, which is all about the Enfield poltergeist, and if you actually read This House is Haunted by uh, Guy Plainfair, um, he's like, the Warrens were here for one day. Mm-hmm. You know, there, were, there was no singing of Elvis, there was no battling a satanic nun near a tree. Mm-hmm. The, the actual investigation was done by others. So whatever you think about the Warrens, the, the, and you can spin this either way, they were very good at self-promotion. Mm-hmm. And I think that they would argue they were doing it in the name of trying to get people to pay attention to the dark forces that are out there and trying to get them to protect themselves and not do stupid things. What are your thoughts about the Conjuring movies? And so the sort of the fun of the Conjuring is what a distorted mirror it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, that even the third one, which is all about the case, uh, Gerald Riddle has a book, The Devil in Connecticut, the the Arnie Johnson case. And for me, what was so fascinating was, again, growing up in Connecticut when that happened and hearing that this guy killed someone and his defense was, I was possessed at the time. Um, Every day I'd come home because we got an evening newspaper at the time. I'm like, give me the paper. And my parents are like, you're a weird 10-year-old. Why do you want the paper? I'm like, I want to know about the devil case. And it brings us full circle to something we've been saying several times, I want it to be true. When Ed tells you these things, you want it to be true. I don't know if it's true or not, but I want it to be because they live in such a much more magical world than we do. And that's what I find fascinating about the films is I think the films present the Warrens as they see themselves and as they want us to see them. And tell us about the book you've written about The Conjuring. Uh, There's a wonderful series uh, put out by Autour, a great publisher in England, uh, called Devil's Advocates, in which they invite um, scholars and horror scholars and film scholars to uh, take a single film uh, and just analyze it in about 100 pages, get really in-depth, analyze the context, and really make an argument for why this is a great film. Uh, And I always enjoyed reading them because uh, I learned things. You learn about the film, like, oh, this film is so much more cool than I thought. That's amazing that they did that. And you learn to look for things. So uh, at one point I was in conversation with Autor saying, oh, I'd I'd love to write for you. Um, And they they said, well, give us a list of films. So I sent over a list of about five horror films that I really love, and one of them was The Conjuring. And they said, oh, this is the most recent one on the list. All the others are kind of classic. Why this one? And I said, oh, well, one, I've, I've met... Uh, Ed Lorraine Warren, and I've I've seen Annabelle, and I know about the Perrin case. And two, I think it really is one of the most effective horror films in the last 10 years. 
And what amazes me is it's rated R. And if you look at the MPA thing at the beginning of the film, it says it's rated R for terror, not for language, smoking, violence, sex, nudity. It's rated R because it is so scary, no one under 18 should see it. And what it makes me even more amazed is it is the only R-rated horror film that I know in which not a single person dies. There is no death in The Conjuring. So it's all this sort of supernatural terror and the implication of demonic activity. And the moment in The Conjuring that terrifies me uh, sincerely is when there are two girls sharing a bedroom and one's like, oh, there's something hideous and horrible in the corner. And the other one gets up and walks over there and goes, see, there's no one there. Cut back to the girl on the bed who goes, it's right next to you. And we can't see anything, but clearly she can. And the idea that I can't see what's over there, but there is something there. Uh, I think the Warrens would love that moment as well because it's everything they argue. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean it's not real. Uh, so they, they picked the film. They said, do The Conjuring. It's a 100-page book that just analyzes the film as terror, looks at the, the history of the Warrens, looks at the larger Conjuring universe and what it implies, and then also looks at how the film... The, the best review I read of it said, look, there's nothing original about The Conjuring. But here's the thing. Fred Astaire didn't invent tap dancing. He just did it in such a way that you watched him and went, that is incredible. And that's what James Wan does in this film. He didn't invent the Haunted House film. He doesn't invent any of the things that happen in it. But it's like watching a virtuoso create this incredible piece of art that guides you the entire way. You don't see anything new, but what you see is the, the art at its height, the best it can be done. Uh, and so I, I just really enjoy the film. And this became a really good excuse to watch all the movies several times. The book is called Devil's Advocate, The Conjuring. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it, um, Auteur is an imprint of University of Liverpool Press. You can find it on the University of Liverpool Press website, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. Any store that carries the Devil's Advocate lines, a lot of bookstores do, you'll be able to find it on the shelf there. Uh, it's, it's a fun book. It's not that expensive. And if you enjoyed The Conjuring or you're interested in Lorraine Warren, for my money, it's a good read. Kevin, it's been a pleasure to work with you on My Dark Path, and we have a lot of exciting new episodes about the paranormal that we're working on together. Any closing thoughts? Well, for yeah. me, it's it's the combination of X-Files and Carl Sagan. I mm. want to believe, but extraordinary claims requires extraordinary proof. Yeah. If you're going to show me something and tell me that it is somehow paranormal or supernatural, you need I need to know that there's no other actual explanation. Kevin, thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, and let us continue to walk this dark path. Part 4 I'll admit something, that walking the dark path through the story of the Warrens, I haven't ended up quite where I had anticipated. We've done a fair amount of debunking on this show, and given what Kevin and myself have described to you, I think it would be easy to land on the side which describes Ed and Lorraine as simple con artists, publicity seekers spinning yarns. But then I think about the fact that they never charged money to any of the people they investigated. The money they brought in was from television producers and book publishers, or even people like Kevin who were just fascinated enough to want to hear them tell their stories. It seems to boil down to whether they believed in what they were saying or if it was all a front. Oddly enough, what the Warrens remind me of is the legendary knight Don Quixote de la Mancha. In the masterwork of literature by Miguel de Cervantes, Don Quixote is an aging nobleman who is overtaken by the belief that he is a heroic knight and sets out in a battered old suit of armor on a journey to slay monsters and protect the virtues of honor and chivalry in the world. He mistakes a local inn for a castle, charges at a windmill, believing it to be a giant, and no matter how many cynical people he encounters, no matter how often he is mocked or beaten or exposed as a fraud, he still insists he's a knight, Don Quixote de la Mancha. The epic novel is over 400 years old, and to this day, scholars and book lovers debate whether it is a tragedy about a delusional fool or a biting comedy about the lack of honor and romance in the modern world about whether or not there's any virtue in defining your own reality. And by the way, Miguel de Cervantes' book also claims to be based on a true story. To the extent that any of us can guess, I think that, as with Betty and Barney Hill in the UFO abduction case we told you about, 
Ed and Lorraine Warren genuinely believed that they were finding and doing battle with evil spirits. Now, this is the sort of thing that leads to cults, but other than training a few younger people to carry on their study of demonology, this doesn't seem to have happened. Certainly nothing on the scale in the episode reproduced on the self-proclaimed UFO abductee and messiah who led a terror cult in Brazil. And given how Kevin described their home, their career certainly didn't lead them to a life of luxury or arrogance. Ed Warren died on August 23, 2006 at the age of 79. He was buried in Union Cemetery, which Lorraine and himself had actually written a book about. In Graveyard, co-written with Robert David Chase, Ed Warren claims to have captured on film the essence of a ladylike white figure who allegedly haunts the grounds. So Ed Warren was buried in a haunted cemetery. There's something absolutely fitting about that to me. After his passing, Lorraine would arrange outings for interested fans to visit Ed's grave with her, after which they'd dine at a favorite local restaurant. And when Lorraine finally passed away in 2019 at the age of 92, she was buried next to her husband. Whether they haunt the grounds of the Union Cemetery or their spirits have gone on to their reward for battling the forces of darkness, none of us can say. But it makes for a great story, doesn't it? And why is that? Is it because we envy the singular sense of mission they had in their lives? Is it because we are secretly moved by the idea that any ordinary folks can turn themselves into anti-demonic crusaders? Is it because just pondering it all makes life seem a little more adventurous? What the Warrens tapped into wasn't just the spirit realm. It was something in our own natures that makes stories like theirs irresistible. And try as we like, we can't ever exercise it completely. And I'm not sure we want to. Thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host. I produce this show with Courtney and Eli Butler. Our creative director is Dom Purdy. This show was prepared for us by Kevin Wetmore, who's actually published a book about The Conjuring and its related films. It's called Devil's Advocates, and we've linked to it on our website. Our senior story editor and indispensable man is Nicholas Thurkettle. Our fact checker is Nicholas Abraham. Big thank yous to each of them and the entire My Dark Path team. Please take a moment and give My Dark Path a rating and a review wherever you're listening. This helps the show, and I love to hear from you. Again, thanks for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me. Until next time, good night.